0: Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Jim, and if I've never met you before, I'd love to meet you after the service day and welcome you to our church. I want to say just a few brief things, um, now that everybody's here, uh, about the annual meeting next week. And one of those things that are real important is that uh, after we talked about uh, providing the elders' plan to provide an entree uh, for next week's potluck, uh, Vicki Mills came to us with a better idea. And so uh, she is going to uh, coordinate everyone bringing some soup. And so please contact Vicki if you're willing to bring some soup, and she may have you bring a side as well, but please call Vicki about uh, what to bring for the potluck next week. Next Sunday, during Sunday school, is uh, another Q&A. Again, we like to have multiple times where you can ask questions, so that we can have an efficiently run uh, annual meeting. Any information you need from the annual meeting is located over in the fellowship area. And please please ask your questions before Sunday, as many as you can think of. Uh, call any of the elders, call me, call Lucas. And uh, we just like to do that so we, d- we, don't, um, we don't spend unnecessary time on questions that could be answered in a simple conversation. So we want to respect your time and honor the time that you give on Sunday mornings. So please uh, get that information, uh, take the copies you need to take, and uh, we'll have a great annual meeting next week. Uh, For those of you who aren't members, you're welcome to come. And, you know, I know that everyone loves a good budget meeting, and um, you're welcome to come, but you may not vote. So please, if you're not a member, please do not vote next week. Uh, But you're more than welcome to see how we do things as a church and how we run our business. So, turn with me to Acts chapter 14. We're going to be in verses uh, 8 to 18 this morning. If you're using one of the chair Bibles, it's going to be on page 923. 923. There's a study done by the Pew Research Center, it was done in 2014, about how many people self-identify as being a nun. Now this is not those who have taken up a vow in the Catholic Church, this is N-O-N-E. These are people who either claim to be agnostic, atheist, or who claim their religion is, quote, nothing in particular. In studying these nuns, they studied from the time of 2007 to 2014. Studied a seven-year span. And what they found was there was a very significant increase in the percentage of the population. In 2007, 16% of our population self-identified as a nun. In seven years, the percentage went up 7% of our total population. So as of 2014, 23% of the U.S. adult population self-identified as having no religious affiliation. That's a percentage a year. And when you think of how big our country is population-wise, that's a lot of people. The other thing that they found was that the religiously unaffiliated, as they are also referred, is more concentrated among younger adults than older adults. So among Millennials, these are those in this study, born from 1981 to 1996, 35% of them identified as having no religious affiliation. Now, we've all seen this data in practice. I remember counseling with a young woman at another church, and it was a total epiphany to her that as a Christian, she should not be sleeping with her boyfriend. She claimed to be a Christian, and when we talked about her family life, she mentioned that she had been and was living with her boyfriend. When I explained to her that that's really not how things work in Christianity, she had no idea. She was not doing this out of spite. She was not doing this knowing what she was doing she had no idea the story of a youth that I used to work with we were in another church and she was looking at their chairs we were at a concert and she picked up this strange book that had both words and musical notes in it you and I might know this as a hymnal She turns to me, completely unaware of what it was, opens it to show me and says, What is this? No idea of what a hymnal was. Let me share one other story because I want you to see how pervasive it is. And I'm not making fun of these people. I'm not trying to show that they are somehow stupid, but what I want you to see is just how there is a lack of knowledge. I've told some of you this story before, but I think it is a poignant example. During one of our Awana sessions, Darcy was sharing a message with the third to sixth graders. And she asked if the kids had ever heard of the gospel. Now, that would be a very common word. We use that a lot. And one of the kids responded with this question. Is that a type of lizard? Now, again, I'm not making fun of this kid. But what I need you to see is that there is a growing population that just doesn't know. They know nothing of the things of God. They are a blank slate. And to things that we assume every day, they simply do not know. And according to this research that I quoted earlier, that population is growing in size. And so here's the question. Here's the dilemma. How are we... As believers, going to respond to our culture, a culture that is increasingly becoming less and less knowledgeable about Christian things? What will we do since our world is changing? And people know less and less about Jesus. You know, years ago, you could probably assume, even if someone wasn't a believer, they had some knowledge of the Bible or some knowledge about Jesus. You cannot make that assumption anymore. So what are we going to do? That's our problem. We need to find a solution Part of the answer I want to suggest to you this morning comes in our passage that we're looking at in Acts 14. One commentator has called this the first speech to purely pagan Gentiles in the book of Acts. Every other Gentile before this, a Gentile is someone who is not Jewish. Every other person who is identified as a Gentile in the book of Acts has been in some way connected to the Jewish community. So even Cornelius, who we saw in chapter 10 as really the first Gentile convert, was called a God-fear, meaning that he knew some of the Jewish religion. But here, we're going to see people who know nothing. And it's going to be a little comical, and it's going to be okay to giggle if you feel so inclined later, but what we need to see is that we are called to share the gospel, and that there are specific challenges when the people have no idea what we're talking about. And so I want us to learn from Paul this morning of how do we engage people who have little to no knowledge of the things of God. Our big idea, if you're following along, is this, that God the Creator has sent us out as his gospel messengers to all of the people in his world. So let's start in verses 8 through 10. We're going to look at a miracle that kicks off this story. Follow along as I read. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. So Paul has come into the area of Lystra, and he sees a man who has been born crippled. And he looks at him, and in some way, again, we're not told how, probably through the prompting of the Spirit, he is able to discern that this man has faith. And so he heals the man. This is a common pattern you see in your Bible. You see it in the miracles of Jesus, and you see it in the miracles of the apostles. That a person has faith that they can be healed in the name of Jesus, and they are healed. Now, in some ways, when we see these stories, we wonder why they're there. And one of the clues to why this is there is the word translated here, uh, made well. The same word that is talked about someone's physical healing is the same word we use to talk about someone's spiritual healing. We do this in English with the idea of being saved. So we talk about a lifeguard jumping in and saving someone, and we can talk about someone repenting and believing and being saved. And just as the picture of the man being physically made whole, we see that by faith in Jesus, we can be made spiritually whole and can be healed from the disease of sin and death and find forgiveness and eternal life. And we might expect that that's the end of the story. In fact, there's a lot of stories in the Bible where someone is healed, and that's the end of the story. But in fact, that is just the beginning because people saw this miracle. Miracle so let's look at number two in your outline there, a case of mistaken identity. Look at verses 11 to 13. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So Paul does this ministry, and everybody notices because it's an obvious miracle. The man was not healed because he, you know, he had taken weight off and had iced his legs and let him heal. No, he had been crippled from birth and miraculously was made well and able to jump up and walk around and run around. And so people knew this was a miracle. And they do what everyone, a little tongue in cheek here on this one, what everyone would do if they'd see a miracle, these must be gods. See, again, this shows the difference in culture before when jesus did a miracle when peter does a miracle the question is is how did they get this power from god but here they don't have a context for that so they must be gods themselves and it begs the question why why would they think that paul and barnabas are zeus the head greek god and hermes The messenger god. Well, we find in history that there are stories that would have been like bedtime stories for the people we're talking about. They were what we might think of as a mix of Bible stories, mixed with fairy tales, mixed with tall tales of the Old West. These are stories the people of Lystra would have known. And one of them is about Zeus and Hermes disguising themselves as people. I'll summarize this. If you want to look this up later, you can look up Baucis and Philemon. B-A-U-C-I-S and Philemon, P-H-I-L-E-M-O-N. And Baucis and Philemon were an old married couple and they lived in the land of Phrygia. And the story goes that Zeus and Hermes came down And looked like normal people, in fact, looked poor. And they went from house to house seeking hospitality. And all of the rich people in Phrygia wouldn't let them in and wouldn't show them hospitality. But Baucis and Philemon, who were themselves poor, showed hospitality to the two gods. After they showed hospitality to Zeus and Hermes, they they showed themselves to Bacchus and Philemon, revealing that they were Zeus and Hermes. After they left, they flood the town of Phrygia and kill all of the people who did not show them hospitality, but turned Bacchus and Philemon into two trees that intertwined as a sign of blessing that they had done what was right. And so this is a part of their culture. Part of their culture stories like this where the gods come down and do miraculous things, and they see two men do something miraculous, and their first thought is they must be gods. They don't have any other categories for it. So then the question becomes, what do you do when people think you're a god? Now, I don't know how much direct application there is to us because I don't know the last time you got mistaken for a God. I mean, maybe some of you have. I know I haven't recently. But the bigger question, outside of that nice little joke, is how do you respond to people who have no idea what you're talking about? How do you help people understand the story of the gospel when they have no idea. Let's look at verses 14 and 15 to find out how Paul and Barnabas respond to this. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn away from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. The first thing they talk about is who they are. The question of identity, again, it's a a problem of mistaken identity. They think they are gods, but in fact... They are not gods, but messengers of the true God. So Barnabas and Paul, they they tear their garments. This was a way that you could express intense emotion and distress. So they are communicating in a way that these people would have understand that these guys must be upset because they're tearing their clothes. And then they plead With them. And what do they begin with? We also are men of like nature with you. I'm a person just like you. But there is one difference. Look at verse 15. And we bring you good news. So, on one hand, they are just the same. You're a person, I'm a person, but Paul and Barnabas are messengers, and they're messengers of God. Look at the message they have in verse 15. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. So when he calls them vain things, he's obviously referring to other gods, because he says, turn from these things to a living God. That's also telling him, telling them that they think their gods that they worship, like Zeus and Hermes, are dead. Meaning not real. So he says, your gods that you worship, that you think we are, they're not real. They're not true gods. But we have a message from the true God. Again, this idea of turning is is one way to talk about repentance. Again, that's that's sort of a Christian word we use. But for someone who has no categories of biblical words, they don't know the Old Testament like the other people in Acts have, Paul changes his language to help them understand. Turn from this one and turn to the other. Anybody can understand that? Because everybody turns. I feel like there's a great children's book in that. Nobody take that from me, okay? But they have no concept of sin because they don't know what sin is. But they have this idea of you serve these gods, you should instead serve this god. Why? Why should you serve this god? Number one, he's the living God. He is the actual God. And number two, he made the universe. And the universe includes them. So look again how God is described. A living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He's saying, the God that I'm a messenger of made everything you see, including you. And because Paul's God made everything, including them, they owe their allegiance to this God. One of the things that you see in the ancient world is that gods were thought to have political boundaries. So you have the gods of Egypt, you have the gods of Assyria, you have the gods of Greece, the gods of the Romans. One of the huge differences of the God of the Bible, the God of Christians, is that he was God of every place. He didn't have to go through customs. He didn't have to show his passport. He was the God over every country. And while those other gods were represented by parts of creation, so example, you have a sun god, you have a moon god, You have a river god. Well, the true God made those things. And so he is obviously the greatest God. But again, he is speaking in ways that they would understand. Notice how different this is from the long speech we studied in Acts chapter 13. Paul really began by saying to them, hey, remember the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? (laughs) He's starting in Genesis chapter 12 in one sense. But these people don't know Genesis chapter 12. So he goes all the way back to creation. Now when we talked about Acts 13, we we mentioned that, that Paul assumes the understanding that God is the one who created in Genesis chapter 1, but he could assume it because they knew it. But here, they, they don't know. They don't even know that they believe God created everything. Think of the gospel like a steak. When, when we have steak at my house, and when I feed steak, let's, let's pick on Theodore because he's the middle child. I cut up the steak for him because just to give him one solid piece, while it might be humorous to see what he does with it, he's not ready for it. He doesn't know how to handle just one big piece of steak. So we have to cut it into bite-sized pieces. Paul is doing the same thing with the gospel message here. These people have no maturity no knowledge, and so he has to cut it up into smaller pieces. Now, if I cut up Darcy's steak, that would just be sort of awkward because she doesn't need me to do that because she knows how to eat a steak. We have to understand who we're talking to. And sometimes we have to cut up gospel into bite-sized pieces so that people can understand and not make assumptions that they know what we're talking about. Because of their spiritual age, Paul gives them the appropriate food by starting with the idea that God is the creator and that since he is the God of the whole world, they owe him their worship and obedience. And he uses creation, something that they all know and experience. I mean, you can almost hear him say, Look around you. One God created all of this. They knew the creation, but they had never met the creator. And Paul was introducing the creator to people who knew the creation but didn't know the creator. But he also tells them why they should care about what he's saying. Because back then, again, if you believed in polytheism where you just have a bunch of gods like these people would have, the practice would be, well, you can just add somebody else's god. So let's say you travel to Egypt and you sort of like what they're doing with Horus, one of their gods. You can just add him too. It's cool. There's always room for a couple more gods. But look at what Paul says, because here he's turning the, turning the corner here. Because God is not just one of the gods, he is the God. Look at verses 16 to 18. In the past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Now let's start by looking at what it says in 16. In the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. The idea here is not that sin wasn't sin, but that God did not have a direct, active spiritual relationship with the other nations like he did the nation of Israel. And so in one sense, since they were not Israelites and did not have God's word, did not have the temple, that they were permitted to walk in their own ways. But they still had a witness. A witness who knew enough to find them guilty. And that is creation itself. Look again, verse 17. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So, what can you know about God from creation? One, that there is a creator. And two, he is a good creator because he sends rain and has things grow. And so just from that, if you've never been to Sunday school, if you've never been to Awana, if you've never been to church ever, you can know that there is a creator and he is good. And so Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God gave creation. One of the reasons God created the world was to be a witness to himself. And so Paul says, look, you guys, you guys know creation. You know that you get rain and there are plants that you can eat and that there is a creator and that he is good and he has given you these things and we are telling you about them. Now in verse 18, Luke summarized by saying this, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. Now, it sort of demonstrates that this is a chaotic situation and maybe Paul wasn't allowed to finish what he was going to say or maybe this is a summary where we get the big idea not the verbatim speech that Paul gave. Because I think if Paul had the time and the opportunity, here's what he would say. To have a right relationship with the God who created you and everything around you You need to turn away from sin. You need to turn away from what is rebellion against the God who created you. And you need to turn towards Jesus, whom God sent, who lived among us, who died in our place and rose again so that we could be reconciled to our creator. So again, we see in the story that the message doesn't change, but how we give the message needs to be adapted to the culture to whom we are speaking. If I say repent and believe to one of these nuns, they're not going to know what I'm talking about. And so just like Paul used creation, so too we need to be witnesses of the creator to God's world, to the people that he made. Let me give a couple points of conclusion as we close up today. I've said it a couple times before, but but I want to be clear with this one, that one of the tools God has given us to share the gospel is creation. One of the ways where we can have gospel conversations with people is around the creation God has given us. Now we need to not waste the opportunity we have living in such a beautiful part of the world where people already love creation. Some of them, in fact, love it too much. (laughs) But what a wonderful bridge to say you love what you see Well, let me tell you about the one who made it. You love creation. Let me tell you about your creator. Let's not waste the mountains. Let's not waste the ocean. Let's not waste the giant trees that are everywhere as an opportunity to share the gospel. Number two, I want you to pray for God to increase your love for those who are far away from him. In one sense, we could say that the Jewish people to whom Paul was speaking were closer to salvation because he didn't have to explain everything to him. And in one sense, the Gentiles, these these purely pagan people, were very far away because they didn't know anything. And I want you to think about the people in your life who are far away from God. People who, who look and dress completely different from you. Who you really don't feel you have much in common with. People who didn't grow up with the Christian influence you may have grown up with. People who know nothing of Jesus. Even immigrants who grew up in a completely different religion from you? Do you love them enough to share the gospel with them? Even though without Jesus, you would have nothing in common. Sometimes it's harder because it takes more explanation, it takes more time. But those people need to hear about their saviour. Number three, be wise in how you speak about Jesus. Don't make assumptions. Don't assume somebody knows a story from the Bible. Don't assume, this is a fun one, this is one I've seen a lot. Don't assume they know what the numbers in the Bible mean. That's one of the reasons we always have a page number in the bulletin because I don't want anyone to feel left out because they don't know where the book of Acts is. And so they don't have to flip to their table of contents. I just put the page number in there so they can feel more comfortable. Because we can't assume that people know what those mean. Also, be careful of Christian words. Salvation, sanctification, justification, propitiation. Those are good words, but when you say them, you need to define them. I, I, I briefly, let me share this story. I was, in, I was at the park the other day, and I started talking to this guy who had, who had a kid, my kid's his age, and it sounds like he was a brand new believer. And he told me this. He was telling me about how we need to be more like our father. And I said, that's great. Perfect. Good, good idea that, that, that God shows his character and we are called to be like him. And then he told me, why doesn't any preacher teach about sanctification? And I said to myself, well, isn't that what he just said, that becoming more like God and his character, that is sanctification. You know, Leviticus, be holy as I am holy. And I'm like, well, what do you mean by sanctification? And it turns out, he had no idea what the word meant. And he borrowed it from another religion that he had grown up in. So even this guy who'd been a believer maybe a year, I think, he was talking about things he didn't know anything about. And again, I don't use that to make fun of him. But it reminds us that we need to carefully speak about the things of God. And there will be times where we need to maybe speak with more simplicity than we're used to. Not in a condescending way, but just in the sense of people do not know. And it requires patience, and it requires us thinking about the words we're saying, and not just what we want them to, to mean or what we think they mean or what we need to know, but what does somebody else need to know? And fourthly, the last one here, rest in your identity as a messenger of the God of the universe. In this case of mistaken identity, we see the true identity of a believer, that we are messengers of the living God, and that both humbles us when we need humbling, because we are not God, we are simply the messenger. But it also exalts us when we need encouragement because I am the messenger of the living God. And when we find our identity there, when it is both humbling when we need humbling and it it is encouraging when we need encouragement, we can find stability so that our circumstances do not throw us into chaos. And so I think there's something important in understanding I am only a messenger, but I am the messenger of the God of the universe. And again, there are times where you need to be humbled by that and there are times where you need to be encouraged by that. But you need to know that that is your identity. Friends, God has sent us out as his messengers. He has sent us out to a world who more and more knows nothing about him? And will we be obedient to go? Will we be obedient to spend the time explaining what may be elementary to us, but is simply not known in our culture? May God empower us by his spirit to do so. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the example of Paul and Barnabas, that we would wisely speak to our culture, that we would be explaining your word with great detail to a culture that increasingly knows nothing of you. God, help us to think about what others need and to think about how they need to hear the gospel And that we would not waste the gift of creation you have given us on this island as a conduit for the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.